0: Welcome back to Simplify. Hi, I'm Ben schumann
1: And I'm Caitlin Schiller. Simplify is for anybody who's taken a look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health, and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this.
0: We are super excited to be back in the studio.
1: Definitely. Ben slept enough last night. The world looks great from over here at the <laughs> end of the table. And we've got some really cool guests this time around.
0: Yeah. We're kicking off with Charles Duhigg, a.k.a. The Habits Guy. Um his book this first book, The Power of Habit, was written in twenty twelve and even though that seems like a long time ago for some reason, today it's still almost always basically every month in the top ten books bought on Amazon.
1: It's not totally surprising because he's just a clear, smart, good writer who can deliver research in a way that makes you excited to read it, which also explains why he won a Pulitzer Prize while working at the New York Times.
0: Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know Charles Duhigg, he's an investigative journalist and a really good storyteller. His books always uh, talk about how he spent like months trying to figure out how to get one story into a book. His research is incredible and he always seems to pick the perfect examples.
1: We talk in this interview mostly about his new book, which is Smarter, Faster, Better. And it deals with productivity, but not productivity as traditionally defined. Charles has this more expansive way of looking at it, which he gets into in our talk, and it makes productivity actually way more clear, not less.
0: Right. And I think this word productivity, as you're hinting at, can be a little scary and people think of it as time management or something. But this is a good episode. This is a really good space to start off with if you want to get into productivity or curious about what's out there.
1: Great, so one thing before we dive into it, the audio is not perfect. Higg is located in New York City, or at least he was for this call, and you can really tell it in the interview. There's street noise and angry drivers on their horns. We cleaned it up, but you still get a uh, sense of place. As it were.
0: Yeah, let's just jump into the interview. Here's Charles Duhigg. Pay attention, all you parents out there, to what Duhigg says about teaching his kids about productivity, which I found super interesting. And we'll also hear about how he totally Duhigg'd Caitlin um, <laughs> using one of his most known productivity techniques on Caitlin directly. We'll talk about that after the after the interview in the bookend. And also make a book list for other books that you could read if you like this topic.
1: Yep.
0: All right. Welcome back. Interview time. Yeah. Catch you guys in the bookend.
1: Hi, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself?
2: Sure. My name is Charles Duhigg. I'm the author of The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better.
1: Awesome. Smarter, Faster, Better and The Power of Habit are both books that are interested in in productivity in a way, but not in the traditional way that one might categorize it. It's It's not a Pomodoro technique, quick fix kind of thing. What you cover in your books is a more expansive take on it. What is your definition of productivity?
2: Well, it's a, that's a good point that it's a more expansive take, but it turns out that that is actually productivity. So, um, when researchers look at specific techniques like the Pomodoro technique or other things, what they find is that that might actually increase your productivity by two or three percent, right? It's a, it's a useful mechanism for being able to organize your thoughts or to push yourself to start a project. However, little techniques like that, life hacks, productivity hacks, they do not tend or almost in any case, create a significant increase in productivity. Because the truth of the matter is that if you're if you're someone who has trouble starting a project and you use a Pomodoro technique or you use getting things done or other methods, that, that'll help you organize how you think and get th- and, and start on work. But it's not gonna make it's not gonna somehow magically make you work on much more productive projects or be able to prioritize much better, right? There are techniques for helping you organize yourself and your life. When people see a A anywhere from 15 to 30% increase in productivity, that does not come from some little technique or a hack. That comes from understanding how to think more deeply about the the questions that are in front of you, right? So people who end up becoming much more productive, it's not necessarily because they end up working harder or because they change how they work. It's because they start working on the right things. Rather than wasting time on small projects, they understand how to identify and begin to break down the big important projects into into meaningful steps. Or they become better at innovation, particularly innovation on demand. And we know this throughout, you know, from literally thousands of studies that throughout history, the killer app, the killer productivity app, has always been thinking more deeply. Productivity changes from person to person and even changes from moment to moment or day to day. But what's important is that productivity is the ability to work on the things that are most meaningful and most impactful and work on them in a way that allows you to get closer to your goal faster and with less stress, strife, and time.
1: Okay, so you said, you said innovation on demand a second ago. What does that even mean?
2: Well, it means that if it, you know, there's this sort of myth that innovation is the type of thing where like an artist sits in a room waiting for a brainstorm. Right. And, and, and that's actually not how innovation works. What we know is that some people can generate innovation and creativity much better than others, not because they're more creative or more artistic, but because they understand how innovation works much better. And in doing so, they're able to basically create a process in an environment that allows them to essentially be innovative on demand, right? Your boss walks in and he says, or she says, I need two great ideas by tomorrow. And they know how to generate two great ideas,
1: Mm-hmm. I think in, in Smarter, Faster, Better, you refer to these people as intellectual middlemen.
2: Right, or innovation brokers. Yeah, and and the basic idea here is that, is that if you look at what people consider to be innovative or creative, it tends not mm. to be something that's brand new. What it tends to be, actually, is it tends to be old ideas, almost cliches, combined in a new way. Mm. And in fact, that that's a really important insight, because what it means is it means that Anyone can be creative and innovative if they understand how to, how to make that process happen. And there's basically two steps to this process. And one of my favorite examples of this comes from the, the making of Frozen, the, Disney, the hit Disney musical. Mm-hmm. The thing that's interesting about Frozen is that Frozen was actually on the brink of disaster until just basically two months before it appeared in movie theaters. Like they didn't understand how to make that movie work. And everything that they were trying just seemed like, Kind of old and cliched and tired. You know, it, it, it just, it didn't seem like really, it didn't seem very creative and innovative until they had this big meeting, literally just a couple of months before the movie appeared in movie theater and on screens when they were still still working on the script and still writing it. And they made everyone sit down and they said, look, we want you to tell us a couple of ideas that are important to you and we're going to see if we can generate something new out of that. So they go around the table and everyone says princess stories, right? Like nobody knows princess stories better than Disney does. Um, and so they go around and they say, look, we want to tell a princess story. And then the second thing that happens is they go around again and, and there was an unusually large number of women who worked on Frozen. In fact, um, the first female director in Disney's history was the co-director of Frozen, a woman named Amy Lee. And, and they go around and, and everyone in the room, a number of people in the room start saying, look, you know what's really interesting to me? The concept of sisterhood, right? And and sisterhood is in itself a cliche in literature, right? There's like little women and there's the Bronte sisters. There's all these like sisters throughout throughout literature. So it's kind of a cliche to say, like, I'm interested in sisterhood. But they go around and a number of people say, like, you know, the interesting thing to me about sisters is that, like, they're complicated, right? Those relationships are really complicated. And it's usually not like you have one good sister and one evil sister. It's like both are good and kind of evil and they get along and then they fight with each other and then they get along again. (laughs) And they said, look, let's just take these two ideas. What if we took the idea of princesses, which is a cliche, and we took the idea of sisterhood, which is kind of a cliche, and we jam them together. And in doing so, they were like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, like, if we do that, it opens up all these possibilities. Right now, now we could have a prince, but the prince won't save the princesses. The princesses who are sisters, they'll save each other. And that means that the prince can actually be the bad guy. But we don't have to reveal that till the very end of the movie. And as soon as they would said, we're going to take these two cliches and combine them, it allowed them to basically see some creative opportunities, some creative potentials that nobody had perceived before. And that's what i mean about creativity on demand. There are methods, there are formulas for things like setting goals or innovation or decision making that the most productive people know. And what those what those formulas are is it it, it isn't something like set a timer, right? It's something like it's something like sit down and, th- and figure out how to think a little bit differently. And in doing so, you will see opportunities that other people might not.
1: Sit down and learn to think a little bit differently. That sounds like a tall order if you don't know where to start. How do you, where would you tell people to start?
2: Well, I tell them to read the book, right? <laughs> like like the, the whole the whole point of the book is to is to sort of explain that to you. I mean, there's there's a lot of really interesting studies out there um, that talk about how to think differently, right? And but most of them are written for academic audiences,
1: right? But then then what's something that you've used that's been helpful to you for thinking differently?
2: So we know that one of the things that the most productive people do is that they tend to to visualize their days with just half a degree more specificity than everyone else. And in psychology, this is known as building mental models. That basically, if you can build mental models that anticipate how your day is going to unfold, you tend to be do a better job of sharpening your focus and being able to remain focused on what's important and to ignore distractions. So one of the things that I do, for instance, is that in the morning... As I'm riding the subway to work, and I do this with my kids also when I'm taking them to school, is I I I basically say like, okay, look, if I was visual, if I was writing a script for today, like, what are the, what's going to happen in this script? Like, what what do I think I'm going to get done before ten o'clock? What am I going to get done between 10 and 12? Like what's the most important thing to get done between 10 and 12? Because I know that it's going to be much easier to sort of make choices as things come up if I have this mental model in the back of my head. And then when I write to-do lists, very similarly what I do is I don't fill a to-do list with a bunch of tasks, right? A lot of people use to-do lists as essentially a memory aid. And it's it's good to like dump the contents of your brain onto a piece of paper so you don't have to keep it in your brain. But But that should not be your to-do list. That should be just a list of things that you want to remember for the future. Your to-do list should only have three things on it, right? Which is, number one, what is the most important thing you wanna get done today? And number two, what is the thing you're gonna get done if you get the most important thing done? And number three, if for some reason you get both those two things done, Like, what do you want to start on next? Or in other words, what's the most important thing for tomorrow? And the reason why I say that is because a to-do list, instead of a memory aid, a to-do list ought to be a prioritization device. And so forcing yourself to figure out what your priorities are, that actually brings you much, much closer to getting the most important goals done, which is productivity.
1: Hi, I'm Lexi from New York City, and I'd like to tell you one thing that's actually a lot simpler than you thought it was, moving. Whether it's moving apartments, moving cities, or even moving countries, if you look at moving like a huge opportunity to declutter your life, you won't actually have that much to move, and you won't have to lift a finger doing so in today's shared economy. You know, I I wanted to to switch tracks just a little bit to habits, which is what your first book is about, but your second book smarter faster better also deals with them. Um it seems like the most magical ephemeral piece of successfully forming a new habit is its belief. And I found that kind of both scary and beautiful. How did you feel when you learned that?
2: Well, I, it's an important kind of belief, right? Like w- w- what it is is that studies indicate that it's very very challenging for people to create new habits if they don't believe that they have the capacity for change mm-hmm. now that doesn't that doesn't mean that the belief in in our own capacity to change is like something magical that you either have or you don't, oftentimes the way that people develop the ability to believe is by proving to themselves that, that belief is justified. So, so in the book, The Power of Habit, we talk a little bit about um, Alcoholics Anonymous. What's interesting is that if you look at some of the steps in AA, a, a number of them uh, rely say you have to give over to a higher power. And it doesn't say it has to be God. It doesn't say what it is. But it says you have to believe essentially in a higher power than yourself. And what researchers have found when they looked at AA is that this is actually like a very important part of AA. This is one of the reasons why AA has been so effective for millions of people. And the reason why is because if you, if you just sort of pretend or at least try to believe in a higher power, even if it's like, you know, the flying spaghetti monster or something like that, like, right. or nature or whatever it is, that you actually get to practice belief in a very low stakes way. And that practicing of belief that helps you believe that you have the capacity for change. Mm-hmm. Belief is kind of like a muscle, like when we exercise, they get stronger. But then this other thing happens in AA, which is that you tend to sit among these other people, and, and they'll they'll you know tell their stories and tell say that they've been sober for you know a year or two or what, whatever it is, and and something happens, which is that people watch these other people and they think to themselves, look. Jim says he's been sober for a year. If Jim can do it, I can definitely do it. And again, you're, you, the reason why this community, one of the reasons why this community is so important is because it helps you learn belief. You see other people who basically say like, I've been able to achieve something and it makes you believe you can achieve something. Mm-hmm. So so the, the concept here is that in order to change, you need to believe that change is possible. But when we tell people that, it's very daunting because like, how do you just force yourself to believe? And the answer is by basically taking baby steps you find little things to believe in, you practice belief, and eventually you start to believe that you have the capacity to do anything, which is
0: true.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned in your books that that you have two small kids at home. How are you teaching your children what you've learned researching these two books? Or are you? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, no, I teach them all the time. So, so at the core of the power of habit is this basic idea, which is the habit loop, which says that every habit has three parts, right? There's a cue, a routine, and a reward. We tend to focus on the routine when we talk about habits rather than the cue and the reward. But it's the cue and the reward that are really powerful and important in creating change and allowing us to diagnose and influence those habits. And so one of the things I do with my kids is whenever they're doing something that, you know, like, is clearly frustrating them or frustrating us. I asked them to sit down and like we diagnose together, like what's the cue that's causing you to do that? And what's the reward that it's delivering to you? And can we find a new behavior that corresponds to that old cue and deliver something similar to that old reward, but is, you know, either healthier or makes you feel like you're more in control or is less annoying to your parents. And then the other things I mentioned, you know, we sort of go through all this stuff, like tell them, you know, tell me what you're going to get done today. Like what's, what's the thing you're most looking forward to do? What's today what's the thing you're least looking forward to to today you know you're in charge if you want to if you want to change that thing that you're not looking forward to how do you take control of that situation how do you turn that chore into a choice which we know is at the heart of how people motivate and generate self-motivation so i spend a lot of time talking to my kids about it
1: i think that's really cool they i hope that they benefit tremendously from it me too um so we're getting we're getting up upon the 20 minutes now. So I want to ask you the two questions that I always like to ask. Um, And one is, if you could tell people one thing about their own nature, and how to become truly productive or more productive, what would it be?
2: Well, I I think the thing I would tell people is that, and we know this from research, is that every single person listening can change any habit that they want to. There are people who have been smoking for 20 years, who will smoke their last cigarette today and will never smoke again. There are people who are 60 years old and they are 30 pounds overweight and they've been overweight their entire life and they will start losing weight today and they will never put it back on. We know this from research mm. that every habit can be changed no matter how old you are, no matter how old that habit is. It's it's a the key though is that you have to understand how the habit works, right? You have to you have to be able to sort of pick it apart into its component parts of of cue routine and reward and understand how to how to create a new habit out of that. And and once you understand that, that doesn't mean necessarily it's easy, right? It's not just that the like everyone can quit smoking just because they they understand the cues and the rewards, but it does make it easier. It gives you a place to start. And that's where productivity comes from. Productivity comes from understanding how to take control of our own life. And we're living through this golden age of understanding the neurology of these nearly subconscious behaviors, we know how to help people change now. They just have to avail themselves of of the tools that are out there.
1: That is that is pretty marvelous. Um, okay, so last thing, I, I was just hoping that you could recommend some some books, something that you've read lately that you really like, or you would highly recommend to people. Just anything that that you've enjoyed lately.
2: Um, you know, I so I tend to recommend um, magazine articles to people. There's there's obviously a number of wonderful books out there, but. Um, there's a lot of really great magazine articles. There's a piece called by Calvin Trillin covering the cop. It's about Miami's top crime reporter. It's like a wonderful, wonderful magazine piece. I would absolutely recommend that to anyone. Um, I guess. It, and then in terms of change, like how change happens, you, there's so many great books I don't know. I tend to read fiction for the most part, to be honest, um, because I find it to be most meaningful. Why is that? Uh, well, I think it's because I write nonfiction. It's just like like it's nice to escape, and, and fiction lets me do that. There is a book I read recently that like I kind of loved. Um, it's a weird book. It's called Void Star, and it's um it's this this person who writes really beautiful literature, trying to come to grips with and understand um what it would be like to be AI, um which I think will become more and more of an issue over the next couple of decades is is what 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 does how does AI think. So Void Star is the name of it.
1: Very cool. And that's fiction? Yeah, it's fiction. That sounds like it could be really interesting. Yeah. All right. Well thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. It was it was great to hear from you briefly.
0: My pleasure. Welcome to the bookend where we end with books and for those of you who don't know I don't know when that became a thing (laughs) where I say that but it's a thing because we talk about books now but before we talk about books we like to sort of quickly talk about the interview and think about one one quick takeaway and um, I guess first uh, Caitlin why why did you want to talk to talk to Duhigg so badly?
1: Well, I remember using his first book, which is The Power of Habit, for this article I wrote a few years back, and I had the impression that he was a really smart writer, writing about what might be sort of boring stuff in a very engaging way. And I mean, it's no surprise. As we said in the intro, he won the Pulitzer. And um, also, there's this video of his on YouTube that I think is probably publicity for his newest book, For Smarter, Faster, Better, uh, because it shares some of the research in it via him telling the story of losing weight after diagnosing his own bad cookie habit. And it just, it really won me over.
0: (laughs) Yeah, cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was a, um, a slightly shorter interview than planned.
1: Indeed it was. How did that happen? Well, I got down to the studio after having been in other interviews for the past hour and realized that I had Skype messages missed from Charles Duhigg, an email from Nat, our production assistant, and also texts from Odie, who had all been contacted by Duhigg, um, asking if we were ready to go an hour earlier than I'd anticipated. At first, I thought it was daylight savings time. And then I realized there was no way that that mistake could have been made. And he'd received the same email I had that said we were meeting at 4 p.m. Central Time. And when I got on the phone, I was so flustered and apologetic and was like, Charles, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. This must have been our mistake. Let's just, let's make the best of this. And he was so cheerful and chill. (laughs) He's like, that's all right. I've got 20 minutes to visit with you today. And I was like, okay, let's do this in 20 minutes. And it turns out that's a technique.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I wait, I have the book. Hold on a second.
1: And um, as it was happening, I kind I was like, this seems familiar. Why yeah. does this seem familiar? You brought a passage?
0: I brought a passage. Well awesome. this is the like you love these these appendixes in his book, appendices in his book. Yeah. And in the appendix to smarter, faster, better, he explains how to use this productivity um, techniques in his life, like how it helped him write the book. And so he's talking about in the section on motivation, how he knew he wanted to write this book, but he was having a hard time just getting to it. And so he remembers this conversation he had with a military general where uh, they said that recruits don't want to start something hard unless they really can take a step that makes them feel in charge, like they have control. Yeah. So he said, okay, fine. So he's like sitting at home, kids are in bed. um, He sees like a million emails, he's overwhelmed. And then he just, he comes up with like a, a line to To help his his motivation based on his military technique, mm-hmm. and the line is, "quote I can attend, but I'll need to leave after twenty minutes." Yep, and then he starts starting all of his emails like that, like yep. just some some way to give him control. Sure, I can attend the meeting, but I'll need to leave after 20 minutes. I hope that's okay. Stuff like that. <laughs> and um, he says he went through two dozen replies, writing a short sentence, hardly thinking about it. And then he would go back and fill in the rest of the email. Yep. So like that's, that was his way of feeling in control. And then he felt motivated. And it's exactly what he did to you. He, he so he'd cut it down to 20 minutes. Yep. And then he was so totally cheerful. He felt like, okay, well, yep. you know, now, um, now I'm excited to do this because I have a, like a modicum of influence
1: control he pulled he pulled the ball into his own court <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah real life do higging yep. live yeah i got
1: it was live doohigging. <laughs> um it was sort of like when michael bungay's denier just used his techniques on me right
0: um but okay but so you did do the interview which is mm-hmm, cool and we did. so what's the one thing that people should remember about the interview
1: for me about the from the interview and from from his books it's that Productivity is not about the actions that you take. It's not about the 25-minute sprints of the Pomodoro technique, though that's you know great, and it's something I use, and I think you've probably used before too. It's about thinking. Being productive and being effective starts on the level of deciding what the most important thing you have to do today is, and then basing everything else uh, after that. Productivity is about choices. It's about how you make the choices that define what you're going to do that day. And um, yeah, a to-do list is great, and Tacks are great but until you get clear on what it is that you need to be doing then it's going to be a little bit hard to have real productivity
0: yeah you told me something the other day like that you learned there's a deeper kind of work that starts before you actually start working before the fingers hit the keyboard
1: yeah right exactly
0: that's a cool way to think about it
1: yeah thanks
0: what about books um you got some books can we talk <sighs> about books of what course. Books should people what books should people read if they're into this or if they want to know more
1: I've got a a few books, and I I think you'd have one too. Um, The first one is Deep Work. It's by Cal Newport. This one covers a lot on technology and how it's wrecked our ability to really focus. Happily, though, it also offers ways to stop letting our machines control us. Um, Cal Newport gives these science-backed strategies that can help you do more deep work, be more productive, and thus have even better free time. And who doesn't want that? Ben, you talked to Newport on the old Blinkist podcast, right? Didn't you guys talk about like showers? And how they're really good places for epiphanies. No, that was di-
0: that was different. But he 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 was he talked about he talked about laundry. He was like, um, you want to allow your brain to rest uh-huh. without completely disengaging from an idea that you're working on. I think the most important part of deep work is like, you want to be ch- you need to be challenged to be really focused, like to be in a deep work state. Yeah. And once you get into that sort of challenge flow, stay in it. And if you can learn how to stay in it. You will have like an advantage over everybody in the marketplace in this like knowledge economy, because all we do is work with our brains nowadays. For the, I mean, for the most part, and if you can figure out how to use that brain working power more effectively, in other words, stay in the problem and stay in the challenge, then you'll be a more effective, a more effective worker and thinker. So that's what I remember from the interview, and also super powerful takeaway from from Newport.
1: Cool. You what? use you use his methods, don't you?
0: When I can, I mean, he's a mathematician, yeah. so he, like, the laundry example comes from, he was saying, I need to work for eight hours on one math problem sometimes, and the way to do that is to, like, get into get into the problem for hours at a time, and then you want to give your brain a break and give yourself a break, mm-hmm. but you don't want to, like, then start watching YouTube. You have to do something where your brain is still dealing with the problem, mm-hmm. but but resting. And so he was giving examples like doing laundry is an example where the brain is slightly engaged on the laundry, but is still in the background working on the problem and when you go back to the problem you'll feel refreshed but don't have to like remind yourself where you were. It's not like you've you've completely disengaged.
1: Yeah. So that's like that whole phenomenon of going out and like taking a quick walk and yeah. just letting your mind wander a little bit if you're working really hard, yeah. Do
0: you have another book, Rek?
1: I do. I have one called Creativity, Inc., which is by Ed Catmull. Um, A thing that Duhigg and I spoke about quite a bit um, is this idea of innovation, being an innovation broker. And he leans in his book and in our conversation quite heavily on the example of the making of the movie Frozen. I was a little bit familiar with the environment of the story, if not the story itself, before he and I even started talking because of this book by Ed Catmull, who is Disney Pixar's president. Um, Creativity, Inc. is a really great book. It's a look behind the scenes at Pixar and Disney Studios and how they generate creativity, how they lead, how they manage, how they set the stage for magic to keep coming out of that one company so consistently and so well. It's pretty fascinating. I'd recommend it for anybody interested in studying up on leading or creativity.
0: Or Pixar fans. Or Pixar fans. Because they don't make a... They've never made a bad movie.
1: Yeah, I don't think they have, no.
0: I mean, I didn't see Cars 2.
1: (laughs) Oh.
0: Um, I have a recommendation also.
1: Awesome. sure. It and I have it.
0: another book. Hold on. Let me grab, put it on the floor. This is yay old Getting Things Done. David Allen, Master of Productivity, Wizard Man, Simplify Guest on season one. And I like constantly go back to this book because there's always more in it than you think. Mm. But the thing that I'm really into now, thanks to a recommendation from our content lead, Ben Hughes, is something that David Allen calls the natural planning model. Bear with me for a second because... It connects to a lot of the stuff that Duhigg says, but um, essentially, if you don't know David Allen, he's like the productivity guy, and his the the reason why he's so big is that everything he says is really simple and like intuitive to a certain extent. Like he's not saying make lists to make lists. He's saying make lists because it's easier that way, and that's how the brain prefers to work. So the natural planning model. He like I'm gonna read the his intro to it. He says you're already familiar with the most brilliant and creative planner in the world. It's your brain. You yourself are actually a planning machine. You're planning when you get dressed, eat lunch, go to the store, or simply talk. Although the process might seem somewhat random, a quite complex series of steps has to occur before your brain can make anything actually happen physically. Your brain goes through steps to accomplish virtually any task. And those steps are defining a purpose, outcome visioning, brainstorming, organizing, and identifying next actions. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Not to be too into the weeds, but it's like this thing you mentioned about the main takeaway from the interview. Mm -hmm. And also when Duhigg says, you have to know why you're doing something yeah, in order to know how to do it. And the brain does this automatically. If you're planning what you wanna eat for dinner or where you wanna go eat for dinner, your brain's already like, I wanna eat dinner at a restaurant. And then automatically you're like, what kind of restaurants do I wanna go to? Do I need a reservation? Who should I invite? Is it cash only? Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can apply that like natural brain style to bigger projects, then you'll find it goes easier and more effectively. And it connects to what Duhigg said in the interview with you. And he said he defines productivity as like the ability to work on things that are meaningful and impactful, but in a way that's less stressful. Yeah. And this idea of like productivity is about less stress is something that David Allen is always talking about. He's like the chillest productivity expert in the world probably. yeah
1: so relaxed um, cool that's a great recommendation yeah. I, I like the, the the thing that I think I've learned through working at Blinkist and through doing these interviews and talking to these productivity people is that so many of the the things that we think are more stressful like planning and organizing they're actually the thing that make your life okay right, right. <laughs> and they're not stressful they don't have to be there all. are stressful
0: ways to do them.
1: They are, there are but they don't have to be like that exactly. which is kind of great yeah, yeah. awesome
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Simplify. It was produced by me, Ben schumann Solar, Caitlin Schiller, Nat Doroshkina, and Odie Constantino, who was a early investor in the vertical farms. These are the farms that, like, you can build inside like a big box, and you pull out, so it's a vertical. Um, and if you've ever been to his apartment or one of his apartments, uh, you'll see these giant boxes everywhere, and each one is like a different kind of lettuce.
1: Wow! So he, he makes, does that. He makes great salads. He makes great salads. Mm-hmm cool so if you heard something that stuck with you this episode i hope that you will share it sharing it with one person gets simplified into the ears of somebody else who might really appreciate it or appreciate you uh so yeah use it to start a conversation
0: and thanks to everyone who's already subscribed to simplify on google play overcast apple podcasts spotify stitcher pocketcast wherever you listen to podcasts um shout out to android people also they like podcasts too And um, yeah, give us a shout out if you want A star, a heart, a review, a rating, a thumb Whatever they got And that helps us get the word out
1: And we are also on Twitter I'm at Caitlin Schiller and you are
0: At Bisto, B-S-T-O
1: so, yeah, say hi to us there. And Simplify is made by the same people who make Blinkist, a learning app that takes the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into focused little capsules of audio and text that you can listen to or read in just 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, and you can try it out if you want to know what all the fuss is about. You can get 14 days free by going to Blinkist.com friends and typing in this episode's special voucher code, which is Q, not like a pool Q, C-U-E, Q.
1: And that is my cue to tell you that you can email me and Ben at podcast at dot com. Um, and remember, if you want to send us a voice memo because you're more of an audio person, we'd like that, too.
0: Yeah. Tell us your stories. Answer the question. Caitlin's favorite question. What's something that you found was easier than you initially thought it was? Mm-hmm. And send it to us at podcast at dot com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Simplify. So check it out. We're really excited about this season. In the meantime, this is Ben checking out.
1: Check it out. See you guys. Bye.